And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to the hardships that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not selfish. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is my number one wedding verse. This is the love chapter of the Bible. That's what it's called, the love chapter. When I do weddings, I quote that chapter. But today we're going to take you a message for you sitting here. Someone took the time to talk to a bunch of children, a bunch of kids, about their ideas concerning love. And here are some of the comments. Greg, who is eight years old, love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball's pretty good too. (laughs) Maya, age nine, no one's sure why love happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorants are so popular. Roger, age nine, love is like an avalanche. Well, you have to run for your life. (laughs) Leo, age seven. If falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It takes too long. Now, Bobby, age eight. Love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five. But the girls keep finding me. (laughs) Now, Kenny, age seven, we got to have some uplifting on this sermon because it's going to get tough. Age seven says, it gives me a headache to think about all that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Ava, age eight. One of you should know how to write a check because even if you have tons of love, there's still going to be lots of bills. (laughs) We'll get back to these, but I'm going to get your manual in here, number eight. I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be that painful. (laughs) Now, I'll get back to some of these kids' quotes. Today, we're looking at 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul has been telling us about a number of things about love. It is long suf- the long-suffering kind. It, 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 they're not jealous, they're not boastful, they're not arrogant, they're not rude. Today we're going to look at the next two things the Apostle Paul has to say about love. About agape love. Now that's spelled 
A-G-A-P-E, if you want to write that in your sermon notes. Agape love. It's, it's a special kind of love. It's the kind of love that causes us to reach out to help each other without expecting anything in return. Most of what passes for love in this world today is eros. Love. Eros, depends how you wish to pronounce it. Eros is how I pronounce it. The kind of love that is self-centered. In other words, Eros love is concerned and foremost about itself. About what I need. What I want. What appeals to me. What attracts. What's attractive to me. When Eros love feels unappreciated, it sulks. When it feels unrecognized or unrewarded, it quits. When it's spurred, it gets, it turns bitter. Let's just word it that way. Because ears love is self-centered and selfish love concerning above all else, which makes myself happy. But God wants us to realize there's a whole greater dimension to life than selfishness. There's agape love, divine love. And Jesus has demonstrated it to us. He's demonstrated that kind of love in his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is telling us that kind of love can be ours too. We can rise above the pettiness that so often marks lives, and our lives if we want to be honest. We can begin to exhibit agape love that brings joy, real joy into our lives. Now I'm going to get I'm going back to the kids now. I'm going to read you a few more what they said. Because have you ever noticed kids are more honest than adults? No, 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 check me out. I like quoting kids because they're telling you what they really think. Love is when someone hurts you and you get mad, but you don't tell them because you know it hurt their feelings. That's a great definition of love. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas time if you'll just stop opening presents and listen. Oh, I I, I could preach that one. Love is like an old woman and old man who still friends even after they've known each other for a long time. I think these kids have got love figured out. Love is when your puppy licks your face, even after you've left him alone all day. Can you see a kid saying that? uh, This one matters the most, though. You really shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot, because people forget. 
These kids got a lot more wisdom than a lot of adults running around these streets. Now, if you have a King James Bible, or if you like King James Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 reads this way. Paul says, love does not seek its own. Now, the NIV puts it, love is not self-seeking. In other translations says, love does not demand its own way. And there's actually a couple that say love does not insist on its rights. When you get right down to it, there are two attitudes, two basic types of people in this world. There are those who continually concerned about their rights, and there are those who are thinking about their duties. There are those who insist upon their privilege and those who remember their responsibility. There are those who are always thinking about what life owes them and and there are those who never forget what they owe life. I believe Paul is simply saying that the key to solving the most to solving most of our relationship problems, let's word it that way, would be if men and women to focus less on their rights and more on their responsibilities. Am I making sense of this sermon, right? Less of your rights and more of your responsibilities. So I got a wonderful picture up here for you. There's a tombstone in a small English village that reads, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared nothing but gathered others' wealth. Now, where is he now? How or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Anybody want... That's actually on a tombstone. Okay, now I'm going to give you another picture here. I want to contrast this tombstone to... St. Paul Cathedral in London. That's where you can read it. And I got the plate for it, but there's also a huge tombstone. And it, to the sacred memory of General Charles George Gordon. You should read his story. Charles George Gordon. He's a general. He gave his life protecting his people. And it reads who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak and his substance to the poor and his sympathy to the suffering and his heart was to God. I'd much rather have that on my tombstone than the first one. That's the difference between self-centered or eros love and selfless love, agape love. Next, the Apostle Paul tells us love is not easily angered. In the King James Bible, the Apostle says, love is not easily provoked. Do you like that word? Not easily provoked. Or other love, love never fails or never flies into temper. Never flies into temper, if I remember right. Or love is not irritable. 
Notice that the Apostle Paul says, or does not say, love never becomes angry. If we never become angry, we would be spineless jellyfish and people who never stood up for anything. But love, Paul is saying, has a long fuse. Okay. Anybody here have a short fuse? Anybody here have a long fuse? Long fuses have to be developed. Short fuses are easy to have happen. How am I going to take you into this? It doesn't explode instantly. Let's word it that way. It takes time to work things out and overcome the obstacle and solve problems. But there are times when love does demand anchor. It does. So perhaps before we can really understand the remedy that God's holy word holds for anger, we need to understand the problem. See, God's word gives a remedy to anger, but it has a problem-solving thing that goes with it too. Anger is a strong emotion of displeasure. When anger is present, it produces energy in abundance. The Bible clearly tells us that too. It can even push us to do things that tend to hurt or destroy. Do you realize the physical changes that occur when your body go when you get angry? Sugar pours into your system, creating energy. Your heart beats faster and your blood pressure increases. You can't control that. That's a spontaneous thing when you start. Your blood clots more quickly than normal. Additional adrenaline is released. Your muscles tense up. In fact, the muscles in the outlet of your stomach can squeeze down so tightly that nothing can leave your stomach while you're angry. You ever get a sour stomach when you're angry? That's why. The digestive tract can become so sporadic that you get severe abdominal pains are felt when you're angry. Anybody ever got so angry that your stomach hurts? That's why. People have had strokes in fits of anger because of the increased blood pressure. And the tension that it can cause arteries of the heart. The tension can actually cause arteries of the heart to squeeze down hard enough to produce a fatal heart attack. In fact, we have records of people dying because they got angry. That's a medical fact. Check it out. They didn't survive it. They weren't happy. Now, let me take, give you another one here. There are actually many examples of people acting out in anger recorded in God's holy word. You can read about it. And we're going to take a look at a few of them in just a moment. But before that, allow me to show you about a man who did not get angry at the right time. When Billy Graham was alive, he was one of the most spot, he had one of the most spotless reputations 
of our time. Books were written about his life and ministry, and investigative reporters tried to get anything they could on him to criticize. The world wanted to criticize him, but he understood his thing. They looked at his finances. They looked into his marriage. They looked into every aspect of his life. But they really weren't able to find much. Now, some of you heard this before, but bear with me now. Some of you are brand new. You haven't heard this. When Billy Graham went on crusades, he sent people ahead to check out the hotel accommodations to make sure no woman had been planted there so no tabloid photographers could take a picture that would spread malicious gossip and hurt the crusade and them reaching the loss to save them from the pit of hell. You know, National Enquirer and all those type magazines, right? Remember they had the getcha, gotcha? Billy Graham was very cautious. And to make sure that there wasn't any room for suspicion because he was saving people from the pit of hell. But in spite of his precautions, during a crusade in Paris, France, it was 66, 1966, the newspaper headline proclaimed, Billy Graham spends the night with a woman other than his wife. 1966, you can go check it out. If you can read French, you can find it. It was translated in English all over the world. Right? Now, they claim that the hotel registry showed that a woman was registered and spent the night with him in his hotel room. They even printed her name. Beverly Shea. (laughs) Now, most of you who are familiar with the ministry of Billy Graham, and those who don't, let me tell you, said that, that, hear me out now, that his soloist, his long-term soloist, were best friend, George Beverly Shea. In an effort to defame Billy Graham, the tabloids had made a big mistake. Now instead, here's a picture of George. Now this is when he's older, right? He had a voice of God. But instead of getting angry, which would have actually hurt Billy Graham's testimony, he held a press conference, inviting every major newspaper in Paris and France and the surrounding countries, actually, and introduced them to George Beverly Shea. And they, what he said was they were on a, a crusade and they were saving money by two men sharing a room. They had two beds. They, the corporations do it all the time. They put people together in the same room to save money. You know, it, but... They just left off the George. Beverly Shea sounded really good. Now, for you trivia lovers, this Paris crusade, here's a poster of it. There's Billy Graham and his wife walking in front of it. Was his most successful crusade ever in Europe. So what Satan tried to destroy, God blessed. Like I said before, there's actually many examples of people acting out in anger recorded in God's holy word. Now, for you who like homework, I'm going to give you some. I'm going to share with you what happened as a result of anger in one of these, in the life of Nabal. Now, we are told in the 25th chapter of 1 Samuel, if you want to have some homework this week, 21st, I'm getting off the sermon, yeah, I know. 
21st chapter of 1 Samuel. You want to read that. It has a very ending story at the end of the chapter. One of the longest chapters in 1 Samuel. Trust me, homework this week, you you want to read it. Especially if you've been going through a challenge of your life. It's a great chapter to read. Nabal was a very wealthy Israelite. I'm cutting the story down short because some of you won't do your homework. Right? And... If you're a visitor, we don't give you homework every week and you don't have to do your homework. I'm going to tell you a story. But if you, I won't tell you the ending of the story. Okay? If you're a visitor, you got to read the chapter to find out there's actually a honeymoon end to this. You won't believe it, but you got to read it. Okay, i got to get back to telling you the story. See, he was a very wealthy Israelite. And he had many flocks and in the days of David. And his men were living, David's men were living in the hills. And it was a dangerous time for the people of Israel. The enemies often sent raiding parties to plunder and destroy. And David and his men became the champions of Israel. And again and again, they protected Nepal and his neighbors from the enemy raiders. One day, David's men needed some food. And they asked Nabal for some help. But Nabal cursed them and sent them away empty-handed. When David heard how his messenger had been treated, he gathered his men. He was going to, going to go out and punch, punish Nabal. When Abigail, Nabal's wife, heard what her husband had done, she gathered together a large quantity of food and went out and met David and his men. And she soothed their anger. You know, sometimes wives fix when the men screw up, right? They soothed their anger. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 36 and 37, tells us how this all happened. When, the, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in his house holding a banquet like a king that day. It was a massive banquet. And he was, it says he was really high on spirits, which means he was drunk. Right? So she told him nothing until daybreak. Basically, when he sobered up. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all the things, and his heart failed him, and he became like stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now, I want you to notice the words, especially if you're doing any homework, right? His heart failed him, and he became like stone. These words in the original Hebrew language describe a stroke or a heart attack. They were very, it's a very specific word. It didn't mean he just had a flutter in his heart. His heart failed him. He had a stroke or a heart attack. Which is, the Hebrew language is the original language that the book is written in. And it describes a heart attack, a stroke. Can you imagine Nabal's anger when his wife told him what she had done? Intense anger can bring about a terrible physical reaction. Anger can cause you to lose your joy. Whenever anger is allowed to go on and on, angry people lose their joy. Joy is one of the most beautiful qualities of love. In fact, joy is only second to love. 
It changes your world. When the Apostle Paul speaks of the fruits of the Spirit, he puts joy right up there at the head of the list. Just under love. He goes, joy, love, joy, peace is the order he puts them in. It's important for us as Christians to be filled with that fruit of the Spirit. Joy in our lives. Joy that comes from a contemplation and a commitment to God and the peace of God. Not from the circumstances around us that control us, it's from resting in God. I have never met a happy, angry person. No, no, you ever known someone who's permanently angry? They're never happy. They're mad at the world. They're constantly finding fault with others and the way they do things. They're suspicious and bitter. Sharp tongue and vindictive. Why? Because they're angry inside. But God can take that anger away if you just turn it over to them. And because they're angry, they've lost their joy. Joy, God can give that joy back. Any wonder that Paul urges love? He says love is not easily angered. When, when you know love, you don't get angry easy. Anger can push you into doing things you would not otherwise do. Anger caused the first murder recorded in the Bible. Cain became angry because his brother, of his brother, he killed him. Moses was kept from entering the promised land because he got angry. No, 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 no. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because he got angry and acted out in it. Anger consumed the first king of Israel, King Saul. And he tried again and again to kill David. Even though David never lifted any a finger against him. I can give you example after example from God's holy word. But what's important for us here to realize is love does not forbid anger. No, no, no. Love does not forbid anger. Paul says... Love is not easily angered. But he doesn't say that love never becomes angry. Jesus experienced anger. For, and for very good reasons. Jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand. Which means a crippled hand, a shriveled hand. Right? And the Pharisees condemned him for healing on the Sabbath. We are told that in Mark... Chapter 3, verse 5. We're told that Jesus looked around at them in anger and deep distress because of their stubborn hearts. Here when a hand shriveled, works perfectly, and they got upset. Jesus was angry when he cleansed the temple of the money changers, insisting that his father's house must not be made a den of thieves. Jesus felt free to be angry and to let it show and to express it clearly. There are things that make us angry. There is righteous anger. 
as Christians, there is work for us to do. There is evil to be overcome. There is a message to be proclaimed. And we must speak out to a world that it might know Jesus Christ as Lord. When we look at the world and see starving multitudes, when we, we see the hurt and the pain and the lost condition of the world, we must become angry. Angry at Satan for all the sin and evil that's here. Jesus had every reason to be angry when he came to this earth. He saw all the riches of this earth and the power and the glory and the boasting in which mankind sought to cover its own anger and hatred and sin. And yet, he loved us. He knew what mankind was going to do to him. He knew about the cross. He knew the curses. He knew the mockery. He, and at the tomb, he, he still loved us. I got a picture of George here. Now, George, George Crane, he was a newspaper columnist and a minister and a doctor. He had a church down in Florida. Great, great reading. It's, I know it's an old picture because he's an old man, right? But I love reading them. And he tells of a wife who came to the office full of hatred towards her husband. I'm not only going to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he hurt me. You're talking to a minister and a psychologist and a medical doctor, right? So Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. Actually, this is why you want to read him. Go home and act as if you really love your husband and tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be kind and considerate and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love that, that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Now that was his advice. He gave, no, hear me out. He gave that advice to her. Tell him that you're getting divorced. That'll really hurt him. There was a reason for this. With revenge in this lady's eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful. Beautiful. That's the two words that he recorded in his book. Will it ever surprise him? And she did it with enthusiasm. She did, she did it. Acting for two months, she showed love and kindness and listening and giving and reinforcing and sharing. Now, when she did not return to the office, Crane called her. You remember those old landlines, you know, where you had telephone lines? He called her, right? Are you not ready now to go through with the divorce? Divorce, she said. Never. I discovered that I really do love him. A little reverse psychology worked. Once love guides our actions, our anger disappears and joy fills our hearts. It changes our life and brings us into peace. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about war and battles. And yes, we are in a, we're in a war. We're in a battle. 
We're in a we're in a terrible battle in this world right now. There is challenges out there to But what the world has forgot is that there's love and there's forgiveness. See, there is forgiveness. No matter what's gone on in your life, there's forgiveness. See, you don't earn it. You can't buy it. In Isaiah, no, in Matthew, we were in Matthew, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how unless your righteousness surpasses theirs. Well, what he was saying is you can't out-obey the law. See, Christianity has rules and helps to us, but it all starts with this word called love. Jesus Christ so loved the world that he put up with us. He gave his life for us. His Father gave us Jesus. Jesus came. And you can tell by Satan tempting him, he had the right to say no. See, Jesus sent us out as disciples. But before that, he was tempted by the master tempter, Satan. Remember the story? Satan came to tempt him after he'd fasted out in the desert. And Satan couldn't tempt him. How many of you messed up with temptation? You know, the hardest person to forgive is yourself. Now, none of you have ever been angry with yourself, right? You've never messed up. Do you remember what you did 10 years? Have you ever had a pop in your head what you did 10 years ago and you get mad at yourself and you say, if I'd only done this, only done that, only done this? Our challenge is to leave all those problems at God's feet and not pick them up again. He's forgiven you for them. All you got to do is ask for forgiveness. You got to forgive yourself. And you got to love yourself. Now, I would be really happy if all my hair came back. I would be really, really happy if I had eyebrows and eyelashes, right? And I could get that if I quit taking the anti-rejection medicine that keeps my eyes in place. I put those drops in, the hair goes, I get four hairs a month. I'm really, I get, oh, they're big things. But there's consequences to everything. If I quit taking the anti-rejection medicine to get my hair back and my mustache back, right? I looked really good with the mustache. Then I couldn't see. I take the anti-rejection medicine for my eyes. God has given us an anti-rejection medicine for this world. It's called His Holy Word. And if we put it into us, it gets rid of all the gunk and the garbage we don't need in our bodies. And it keeps us safe in this world. So I, I really strongly suggest that you might look at 1 Samuel chapter 25. There was a reward at the end for her kindness, her loving, her... And I'm not going to tell you what it was. You've got to read it for yourself. See, she dealt with anger. And she dealt with it rightly. And then when her husband was falling in the ways of the world, she waited till he was sober to tell him. And he still... He was not, must not have been a really nice person because he had a heart attack or a stroke. In those days, there was no fixing it. You were dead. Ten days, you just died. Heart became hard. What a way to word it. Allow us never to have our hearts get hard in this world. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, there is love at the foot of the cross. 
what man decided to do out of anger and malice and all the terribleness of the world, there was love at the foot of the cross. We thank you for that love. We thank you that your son loved us beyond our lives, that he paid a price to save us from the pit of hell. Now help us to be able to share this with our lost neighbors. Keep us on the right path. And all God's people said, Amen.